This week's forecast, if you've looked at it, is for hot and humid weather. It's a little different from what we've been experiencing. You know, so far this summer, it's been fairly mild. We've had a few days where it gets a little sticky outside, but for the most part, it's, it's been pretty good. But I was looking at the forecast this next week, and temperatures are going to touch the mid-90s, which means that the heat index is going to be 100 and up, and maybe way up. And, of course, around here in the Ohio Valley, that means that you won't be able to breathe at all when you walk outside. And so you know how that air gets just really heavy, really sticky. And so they issue heat advisories. So maybe you've seen those and on your Weather Channel app or on Channel 362 on DirecTV. You're looking at it over and over, and you see the heat advisory. And you know it's going to be hot. What they tell you is don't go outside. Stay inside. Hunker down. You know, build you a shelter and, and stay inside. It's sort of like a tornado coming. But they tell you to make sure that, that you, you stay inside if you can. And if you have to be outside, then drink lots of water before you get there and keep drinking lots of water. Wear loose-fitting clothing, light-covered clothing, and take lots of breaks. They try to give you the warning ahead of time. Because if you don't heed the warning, then it can be obviously very, very destructive. And certainly every year across the country, people die from heat exhaustion or heat stroke or whatever because they're overcome with it. And maybe in some cases, they simply didn't heed the warning and get somewhere where it was cool or drink enough water or take care of themselves. There's no reason to play games with stuff like that, as you well know. So if you get nothing else out of the sermon this morning, it's going to be hot and humid this week. Take care of yourself. We're in a series called Character Assassination. And we've been looking at the holes in our character that can cause us major, major problems. And we're going to see a warning today that if we don't heed the warning, then it will cause us major problems and set us up for destruction, unfortunately. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to spill over into chapter 5, just so you know. One of the things about the Bible that we might think is true is not necessarily true that when one chapter ends, the next chapter begins, and there's a major break right there. Not always. And what we'll see today is beginning in chapter 4, verse 32, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, that there's one episode that happens to be broken up by a chapter break, but it's all one thing to teach us a very important lesson. Now, let me catch you up to speed real quick on the book of Acts. If you know anything about it, uh, then you may know that a guy named Luke wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. He was a doctor and was very smart and a very good writer, very detailed, and he wanted to make sure that in the gospel of Luke, everybody knew what happened when Jesus was here. And then he wrote a subsequent book, a sequel to that, where he wanted to know, here's what happened after Jesus left. And so we've got this incredible detailed account. If you, if you want to read about, here's the life of Jesus and what he was about and what he did and, and all of that, and then the sequel to it, then read Luke and Acts. They go together. The book of Acts is about what happened after Jesus left, the establishment of the church and, and its proliferation. And what we've seen so far is that the Holy Spirit is driving the train. Make no mistake about it. Your, your version of the Bible may say the Acts of the Apostles, but what it really should say is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That's really what's happening in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit's driving the train called the church, and they are experiencing a very amazing and wild ride as the Holy Spirit takes them somewhere. What's amazing about it is that we see in Acts chapter 2 that thousands of people are coming to know the Lord. They're getting saved. The church is growing not just through transfer of membership, but praise God through salvations. 
And in one day, the Bible says, 3,000 people after one sermon fall on their faces essentially before the Lord and surrender to Him and say, I want to give my life to Jesus. 3,000 people get saved in one day and join the church. And so it's, it's an amazing ride, people getting saved left and right, revival taking place there in Jerusalem. It's also a very wild ride because if you study what's happening to the leaders of this movement, the apostles who are leading Christianity at this time, what you find is that they're being arrested, they're being beaten, they're being imprisoned, they're being uh, insulted, they're being threatened, uh, they're being told not to preach anymore about Jesus. And in what I find to be biblical humor, they sort of laugh it off and say, well, you can tell us what you want us to do, but we are bound by God to preach Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. And they continue to do that. And, and as a result, God continues to bless the church. And it just explodes in growth. And what we'll see, beginning here in chapter 4, verse 32, to chapter 5, verse 11, is really a contrast of characters. The church is established and it's going well, and we're going to see really the first contrast and bring some negativity into it. And what we'll see from these two characters we'll look at in particular is a great lesson. One that they learned the hard way, and it's a lesson from a very shocking story. And the lesson is very, very simple. It's the only thing you need to fill in on your bulletin today. And I'm going to give it to you right up front. The lesson is really, really simple, and it's this. Don't play games with God. Don't play games with God. Now, some of you already guessed that because you're really smart. And for those who didn't, I'll repeat it. Don't play games with God. Now, you'll see there, you can, you can make some other notes. I've filled, uh, generally, the two categories we'll look at today. I've already filled those in for you. But I've left you some space. If you want to jot down some notes on your bulletin, I hope you will. I hope you don't just write down only what I give you in the fill in the blank because that's not all that there is. Obviously, I talk a little longer than that. But I hope you'll write that down. And if you'd like to follow along and have some of the detailed notes already there for you, you see the little scan, uh, the code down there. You can scan that on your, on your phone or your tablet or whatever and follow along. So the story is going to break down into two different parts. All right? There's going to be those who do play games with God and those who don't. We'll look first at those who don't play games with God. And, and here's the main thing that I want you to understand. Those who don't play games with God experience His blessing. And, and, and we'll look at it. So if, you, if you're in the book of Acts... Chapter 4, as I said, verse 32. Now, now the first section it we'll see, verses 32 to 37, gives us, here's the people who don't play games with God. They're taking Jesus very seriously. They're on board with His mission. And they get to experience something very amazing. The first part of this amazing journey, <clears throat> excuse me, is that they experience some incredible unity. Look in verse, uh, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believe, so this is all the believers, all the church, were of one heart and soul. Now, that describes some incredible unity. Now, what that means to be of one heart and one soul is that they wanted the same things, they loved the same things, they devoted their lives to the same things, they were on the same page, wanting all the same things to happen. I don't know if you've got anybody in your life that's like that. Did you say, this, this is my soul mate. This is my, my brother, as they would say, from another mother. That's what, that's what you'd call it. That's exactly what it would be. It's just like we were brothers and, and we didn't even know it. And these guys, just like that in the church, they are so united, so tied together. They want all the same things. They love all the same things, united. Now, the foundation of their unity is twofold, really. The first part of it is that they're united based upon their sacrifice and their generosity. Look at verse 32 again. <clears throat> no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. 
In verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. Then this, then what was, then rather, this was then distributed, excuse me, to each person as anyone had a need. Here's the way they show up to church. They show up to the body of Christ preoccupied with how they can minister to somebody else. Now that's a far cry from what happens in a lot of churches in today's world, as you well know. Now, nobody here, of course, but some people show up to church with their arms crossed and they say, what are you going to do for me? What am I getting out of this? Well, you know what? I, I had a cold this week and nobody called me. I stubbed my toe and had to put a Band-Aid on it. And nobody even said a word. Now that's a little facetious, I know. But isn't it true that we've got folks in the church today, in whatever church you may attend, that are, that are about themselves? And only what can I gain from the ministry of the church? These folks, if you look at it, they preoccupied with what can I do for someone else? No matter what it costs me, I'm going to show up ready to minister to somebody else. They had lots of people in need. And so what they do is the folks who have extra would sell the extra and use the proceeds then to meet the needs. Now, some would say this is an argument for communism. I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I don't believe we have any of those here. And I don't believe we can find any justification for that kind of operation from this scripture. So that's not what we're talking about. They didn't pool their resources and, and everybody just have everything there together. This was a voluntary act. As we'll see later on, a guy named Ananias, uh, he, he was voluntarily given the option to do with his money what he wanted. Well, this isn't about communism. This is about a voluntary sacrificial love. And that's part of their unity, is it comes out of this voluntary sacrifice, voluntary generosity. The second foundation for their, for their unity is the incredible mission of Jesus that they were on. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. They were not only a community that came together to love and to minister to, to each other as best they could, but they were also, they were also, extremely focused on reaching people that needed Jesus. They weren't just content to maintain what they already had, to just take up space and go through the motions each and every time they met. They wanted people to know Jesus. And so they testified to what Jesus had been about, what he had done, and what he was doing in their lives. And so their foundation for unity was far beyond just sort of getting along and sweeping the issues under the rug. What they did was they loved one another as best they could, no matter what it cost, and they made themselves about the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what unity was to be about. So they experienced this incredible unity, and also as a byproduct of that unity, they get to experience very successful ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but when you think of the ministry of the church, I hope you think, I want it to be successful. I hope that what we do has a return for all eternity. Not just that we get people to come, but that it's truly successful in God's eyes. Look at, look at what's going on here, the success of their ministry. Verse 32, the second part of verse 32, tells us that everybody there had a change in heart toward their possessions. What does it say? Not anyone, no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that they pooled all their resources and put it all together. What they come, came to consider was that I'm not the owner, I'm just the manager. And whatever God says to do with my stuff and my money and my possessions and all the, the things God has given me, that's what I'll do. 
They have a change in heart. You talk about successful ministry. What does the Bible say? You cannot love both God and money. You've got to choose between them. And when you're not playing games with God and you're serious about what He's about, then you're going to have a change in heart toward your stuff. It's no longer my stuff. It's God's stuff as He gives me access to it. Some of which He just blesses me to enjoy. No doubt about that. But these folks say, you know what? God has given me this and even the excess. I'm going to give to somebody else if they need it. And then they had power in their testimony. Verse 33 says that. Great power they were giving testimony. So the Holy Spirit is using their words to bring salvation to those who need Jesus. So they're not about just maintenance ministry and, well, I guess everything's okay. They wanted to move it forward. They were bent on making sure that the ministry moved forward and that more people came to know Jesus. And then they experienced great grace, it says at the end of verse 33. Or for 32, excuse me. Yeah, verse 33. Great grace was on all of them. This is a special move of God. There's something happening that the apostles can't manufacture. And I don't know about you, but when I think of successful ministry, I don't think a great move of Brad. And what can I do to make that church so incredible? I don't think a great move of the deacon body, or the Sunday school teachers, or the membership, or those who attend. I think a great move of God. Period. When I think of successful ministry, I think we figure out what is God doing, where is He doing it, and how can we just get involved? And that's what these folks are doing. They're, they're experiencing successful ministry because they're simply testifying over and over to who Jesus is, what He's done, and what He's doing in their lives. Verse 34, we see evidence of successful ministry and the elimination of need. It says, there was not a needy person among them. Realize this is a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament that among God's people there would be no one who needs anything. That they would simply meet the needs of the people. What an incredible testimony of the love of Christ in the midst of these believers that nobody had a need that wasn't met in the church. Now I'm not talking about that, that, that these folks again just gave everything up and now they're in need. But when they had access... When they, when they saw a need, they simply met it. And this wasn't just about the church as a whole, but obviously these folks came as individuals. And each person was about that. They're also in this successful ministry. They, they submit themselves to the Lord and they, they begin to trust their spiritual leaders. Look at verse 35. They laid them at the apostles' feet. Now the apostles weren't superhuman. They were human just like us. And yet they were the representatives of Jesus Christ. And so when the people came and they laid those offerings at the apostles' feet, it was symbolic. And they were saying essentially, as the representative of Christ, I lay this at your feet because I've surrendered to the one that you represent. And also, in a very real way, they're saying, I trust you that you will take care of making sure that this is used God's way to meet the needs of those who have who have needs. Verse 36 and 37 show us an example of lots of changed lives. Look at this. Joseph, a Levite, and a Cypriot by birth, whom the apostles named Barnabas. Now, if you want to read a great story, then read the book of Acts, and you'll see Barnabas comes up again. Translated, son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this isn't just bandwagon kind of stuff. That it appears that everybody is doing it. Luke gives us here an example of an individual. Okay, everybody is doing this, but let me show you. Here's one guy as well. He's just one example of lots of changed lives. So they're unified. They're experiencing successful ministry, but don't think that it was easy for them. You say, well, good grief. If we had been around when Jesus was here on earth and we had known him personally, well, well, yeah, ministry would be easy. Church would be, you know, every church would be just amazing. 
They had some serious obstacles to overcome, one of which was their size. It says in verse 32, the multitude. You know what that means? A lot. There's a whole bunch of folks. Over 3,000 at this point, well over that, and they would grow to where they even stopped counting. And yet all of those folks, it says, the multitude was of one heart and soul. Realize that unity in the church is not based upon size. Not at all. You can be big, you can be small. You can be big and be disjointed. You can be small and be disjointed. You can be big and be unified. You can be small and be unified. They overcame the obstacle of size. Regardless of how big they got, they still remained unified in their compassion, their generosity, their sacrifice, and their commitment to the mission of Jesus. They also overcame the obstacle of diversity. You realize that, that folks had come in for the festival, the day of Pentecost, from all over, not just Jerusalem. And Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is established, and these folks don't really know each other. They didn't grow up in the same place. They don't come necessarily from the same exact background. They weren't longtime friends, and that made it easy then for them to be unified. These folks had just gotten to know one another, which is amazing. The diversity in the church did not prohibit their unity. And also they overcame the obstacle of poverty. You realize it's very difficult for folks of different socioeconomic levels to interact. Typically, those who have money gravitate toward those who have money. Those who don't have money gravitate toward those who don't have money. That's just simply the way that it is. And yet in the church, that wasn't a barrier for them. Ever. Those who had extra simply sold and gave to those who had need. Those who had need didn't feel like they were looked down upon because they simply received the blessing and the love of Jesus Christ tangibly through somebody else. So they overcame all of these obstacles. Now I'll tell you, this is not a fairy tale. It'd be, it sounds like it. Once upon a time, there was a church, and they lived happily ever after. That, that's not what this is talking about. This is a church and a real one. And this is what church was to be like then, and what the body of Christ as the church is to be like now. Unity and successful ministry, based upon selfless love for each other, and complete surrender to the mission of Jesus Christ. And so as individuals and as churches, we miss out on these kinds of blessings when we simply play games with God and we just take up space and go through the motions. And as we'll see, there is dangerous ground for those who do play games with God. The next chapter will introduce the exact opposite of what we've just looked at. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now you may say, okay, Barnabas just sold a piece of property, and these folks did the same. It appears as if they're doing the same thing. But what does the verse start with? The word, but. Now that signals a change, doesn't it? Here's Barnabas, this individual who's on board with the church, on board with the mission of Jesus Christ. He sells a piece of property, and it's wholehearted, and it's pure. But these other folks, they sold a piece of property. Right off the bat, we know that there's something different. Then look how verse 2 starts. However, there's a distinct contrast here. He kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the words there, he kept back. Do you know what those, those words actually in the Greek, the Greek word used there means embezzled. He embezzled money from the church. Now hold on just a second. He's got the money in his hand. He takes it, 
and yet he's guilty of embezzlement. How in the world does that happen? You can see here that there's something going on because it says, with his wife's knowledge, there's some premeditated conspiracy that's going on. He keeps a portion back, and it's that portion that Luke says he was guilty of embezzlement. Now, this is cautionary, of course, to us, even before we get going with the rest of the story. We see something's not right in their motivation. Something's going on. And it's easy to say, well, what's he thinking? You know, everybody was just giving all the proceeds. Why would he only give part of it? And yet, isn't it true that quite often we do the same thing? That, that he thought, well, this is not a big deal. Nobody's really going to know. How many times in our lives do we say about our own sin and, and our little white lies, well, it's not a big deal. Nobody's really going to find out. It's not going to have any issue whatsoever. He figured that he could just simply hide behind a religious exterior and hide the inside, which was a spiritually dry soul. And how many folks are here today attempting to do the same thing? We've all been there. I want you to know this morning that if you came with a dry soul, the only person that can fill it is Jesus Christ. Religious activity, going to church, reading your Bible, even praying and so on. Those things cannot fill your soul apart from Jesus Christ. He said that He will give living water and those who come to Him will never thirst again. And that's what Ananias needed. He's thinking that he can hide behind a religious exterior covering his dry soul. And in fact, what he really needed was to allow Jesus to fill him up. He's playing games, making himself feel better. And yet in verse 3, Peter calls him out, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? This act of religious pretending doesn't fool God. And it doesn't fool Peter either, who's been given special insight, obviously, by the Holy Spirit. Ananias has opened the door wide for Satan's influence in his life. Now, there's no reason for us to think that Ananias was not a true believer in Christ. He was included, at least it seems, in the multitude of those who believe. So he's a believer in Christ. And yet there's satanic influence going on in his life. This isn't about demon possession. I'm a firm believer that true, true Christ followers, those who have, who have the Holy Spirit living inside them, they cannot be demon possessed. But, don't, but make no mistake, we can be influenced by Satan. We can be tempted. We can be drawn away from what God wants us to do. And I believe that's what's happening here with Ananias. He's played with fire a little bit. He's kind of dipped his toes in just a tad and, and he's being drawn away by this sin and temptation. And he either doesn't recognize or doesn't care about Satan's goals. The scripture tells us that Satan has one goal for believers and that is to destroy you. That's it. In any way he can. And Ananias maybe didn't recognize that or didn't know or didn't care. And he also didn't recognize Satan's traps that he's going to use what's already in you. Those evil desires that maybe still linger. And so he uses Ananias' love for money and recognition here. So Ananias tries to test the limits, and he gets caught up in it and quickly realizes this is no spiritual game, though I've been trying to make it that. This is real. And unfortunately, it takes him much further than he wanted to go. I wonder how many of us today are kind of playing games with God and not knowing that we're throwing the door wide open for Satan. As I said, all he wants to do is, is destroy you. Not merely cause you to have a bad day or... Or kind of have a frustrating week. He wants to absolutely destroy you. He wants you so focused on the things of the world, so obsessed with portraying this false spirituality. 
He wants you chasing everything but Jesus so that He can destroy you. And He wants to destroy your spiritual health. He wants to rob you of the joy of your salvation. You realize that that's not God's goal for you? God doesn't want you walking around having no joy in knowing Jesus. That's what Satan wants. He wants to make you feel guilty and convince you that you'll never be forgiven because of all the things you've done. That's what Satan wants to do. And in the process, destroy your spiritual health. He also wants to destroy your family health. He wants to build into your marriage resentment and a lack of forgiveness and boredom or whatever it may be that will, that will cause you to make decisions that will ultimately destroy your marriage. That's what Satan wants. He wants impatience and anger and frustration and, and work and whatever else that he can throw at you to get in your way of being the parent that God wants you to be. He wants to destroy your other relational health. He wants you so focused on your past hurts, so focused on what everybody owes you because of what you've been through, so focused on why you shouldn't trust people or why people should listen to you. He wants you so focused on all those things that you're never healthy in relationships. He'd also love to destroy your financial health, to lead you to make bad decisions, to convince you that it's impossible for you to do money God's way, to be obedient in giving and so on. He wants you discontented, constantly wanting more. That's what Satan wants for you. He wants to destroy your emotional health, to make you constantly discouraged and hopeless and depressed. That's what Satan wants for you. And in all of those areas, Satan would rather you just play games with God. One foot moving toward what God wants in those areas and the other moving toward your own agenda. And we play games going back and forth and back and forth. And which way will I choose and which do I submit to? And Satan wants to destroy you and tempting you to play those kind of games with God is the pathway that he'll use for your destruction. And often, like Ananias, we allow Satan's influence to tempt us and to move us away from God's agenda and we throw the door wide open. Peter will tell him in verse 4, you're under no obligation to give this money in the first place. Look what he says. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So basically he tells him, Ananias, look, before you, you sold this, you had it. You could have done anything you wanted to do with this particular field or this particular piece of property or this money that was, that, that was the, the proceeds from it. And wasn't it even after you sold it, it was at your disposal. You had the choice to make as to what you were going to do. But what's implied here is that Ananias had previously said, I'm going to sell this field and I will give it to the church. I will give it to the general fund here that's going to be set up to provide for the needs of those people who, who have those needs. And so apparently there was some sort of contractual agreement, some sort of promise that was made, and that's where the embezzlement comes in. Why? Because he's, you can't embezzle your own money. You have to embezzle somebody else's money. And in this case, he's embezzling the church's money because he had already promised it to them and it was essentially already belonging to the church, belonging to the Lord. And so this reveals really the, the real problem. That he and his wife had planned to commit spiritual fraud. Peter would go on to, sell it, to tell him, look at it, why is it that you had planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So what they do is they plan to put out this, this portrayal that we're spiritual and we're generous, and in reality, that's not the case. So they lie to the church, which ultimately was a lie to God. But the problem, if you understand this, is not even the lie. That's a big deal, but it's not the deal. Because all the lie does is point to a deeper issue. This thing, Peter says, that you conspired to do. What was that thing that Ananias and his wife planned in his heart? Well, it had to do with self-glory, the desire for recognition and self-promotion. It was about portraying a false spiritual identity. 
They just simply concerned themselves with what people thought rather than what God thought. And so this thing was their public attempt to pretend to be selfless, generous givers, submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ as they symbolically lay this gift before the feet of the apostles. And God's having none of it. They wanted to gain spiritual prestige and make some money off of it. Now, we've never seen anybody in our society who's wanted to do that. Certainly no one that you've ever seen on television that wants spiritual prestige and make a little cash on the side. Nobody has those desires, right? That's not anything new, unfortunately. He wanted credit for being, for being a great Christian, but he didn't want the inconvenience of it. And so what he does is he introduces selfish interest and selfish ambition to a church that was completely surrendered to the Lord. And we've all seen that from time to time. Maybe you grew up in this church or another church, and at time to time, you've probably looked at folks and say, you know what, you're only about your own agenda. You're only about your own interests and your own preferences. And you've seen how that can destroy a church or at least render it ineffective. And that's why the response of God, I believe, in this instance is so strong. Ananias, because of his selfish desires, deceives everyone, lies about it, and plays games with God. And he finds out very quickly in verse 5 that it costs him everything. Look at it. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. God doesn't play games with sin. He doesn't play games with it. You may not like that. You may wish that God was, was different. You may say, well, God is a God of love. Absolutely. And part of His love is justice. Part of his attribute is holiness. He will not tolerate sin. God does not play games with sin. Now, the discipline for believers is not always this harsh. I don't want you to walk out of here today and say, well, if I lie today, um, then I'm going to die. Because that's what the preacher said came from the Bible. Don't lie or you're going to die. That rhymes too. That's a good Baptist preacher thing. That's not what I want you to leave here with. The discipline is not always this harsh. But we need to remember, here's what you leave with. We need to remember that sin is a big deal. And that it always takes more than it gives. It always takes more than it promises to give. And some of us today would say, amen to that. I look back on my life and the sins I've committed that I thought were so incredible at the time, that I, that I wanted so badly, and I realized there was no return on that. Satan's nowhere to be found, by the way, after the sin. He's only before it. And so sin always takes more than it gives. And then look at the second part of verse 5. This is the, well, yeah, a great fear came on all who heard. You think? Peter talks to a guy who sold a field and lied about it, and the guy died on the spot. Be careful around Peter. A great fear comes on all of them, as well it should. What they recognized was not that Peter struck the man down, but that God's discipline fell on sin in that moment. And that they lived in the presence of a holy God. And so do we. And not just at church. But wherever you go, you live in the presence of a holy God. Even when nobody sees you, God is there. And you are in the presence of a holy God. And we need to have... I believe, based upon this scripture, a healthy fear of God's power and a healthy respect and fear of the consequences of our sin. And maybe you say, you know what, in some cases that'll be enough for me to say, Lord, I'm not going down that path. 
I don't want the results. Verses 6 and 7 describe how Ananias is buried and his wife comes in three hours later. She doesn't know what's going on. And in verse 8, we get a little more detail about their sin. Tell me, Peter asked her, Sapphira, did you sell the field for this price? Is this, is this, are you telling me the truth? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Ultimately, here's what's going on. They are pushing on God's grace and on the Holy Spirit in this spiritual game of how far can I go? Here's the line, let me cross it. Okay, nothing happened. Here's the line, let me cross it. And they play this spiritual game of how far can I go, and eventually it catches up with them. She is just as responsible as her husband. She can't blame him. Peter puts it directly to her and says, is this true? And she's, oh yeah, it's true, absolutely. And he says, why have you done this? Why have you just simply wanted to see how far you could go with God and how far you could push His grace? Verses 9 and 10 tell us that it cost her everything too. He says, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. Young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear again came on the whole church and all who heard these things. It's a very shocking story. It may make you feel a little uncomfortable. You think, I always thought that God was a God of love and forgiveness and grace and Oh my goodness, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I'll tell you this, God is still a God of love, grace, and forgiveness. And yet He doesn't play games with sin. And He can do all of that perfectly because He's God. (laughs) He can be loving and graceful and forgiving and still not tolerate sin all at the same time because He's God. He doesn't have to choose between those. The story is shocking, may make you feel uncomfortable, but it all really goes back to the games that Ananias and Sapphira decided they were going to play with God. Their desire to appear to be something, their desire for recognition, they're having one foot moving toward God's agenda and the other moving toward their own, this dance they thought they could do with God. And the warning is clear, don't play games with God. Now the positive side to that is that He has so much more for you than those games can offer you. He really does. You see in the very first part of this that the blessing of God is for those who will take Him seriously and say, Lord, I give you everything. That's the blessing of God. You see, you experience all those incredible things. But those who don't, those who don't fully surrender, those who will play games with God, put themselves in danger of being completely ruined. You may not lose all eternity because if you're a true believer in Christ, you are secure for all eternity. But let me tell you this, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. You're going to miss out on the living water that will fill your dry and thirsty soul. You're going to miss out on on all the things that God wanted you to experience in this life because of His presence. So this morning, it's time to decide. And I don't mean that in a cliche. I want to call this morning for each and every one of us to make a decision. For you, for us, to say no more games with God. I want to call you to make the decision to either surrender everything or surrender nothing. But don't play games with God. Surrender everything or surrender nothing. And I really mean that. But don't play games with God. Some questions that naturally arise from this help us maybe determine where we stand this morning. When you think of unity in the church, here's a question for us. Is our unity, is it like theirs that they saw in Chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Is it based on selfless love and complete surrender to Jesus and His mission? Is that what our unity is based on? Or 
Is our idea of unity simply the absence of personal conflict? I'll tell you this, and I stand on the Word of God to say this, not on my own opinion. I certainly don't have an axe to grind. But if all we're worried about is getting along and not rocking the boat, then as a church, we're playing games with God. Because we're not about His mission. And so I pray. My, part of my prayer is that, Lord, help us to make sure that we have unity on the things that you care about most. Do I want people to be in conflict? No, I'm not crazy. But at the same time, there is a greater unity to be had, a greater purpose than simply keeping the waters calm. Another question for us based upon this scripture. Do you regularly give generously and sacrificially? Are you a percentage giver, as the Bible calls us to be? Are you a spontaneous, generous giver that when you see a need and God prompts you in your heart, you say, you know what, I, yeah, I can meet that need, I'm going to. It may require you to sacrifice, absolutely. I'll tell you this, that any approach to your money that doesn't see God as the owner and you as the manager and His priorities as most important, any approach other than that is playing games with God and your money. And maybe you wonder why you're so frustrated and discontented and all of that. Maybe it's because you're just playing games and haven't sold out completely to God with your finances. I'm not even talking about taking up another offering here in a second. That's not what it's about. Because we're not going to do that. But what I'm talking about is between you and God, are you playing games financially? Or have you surrendered that area of your life to Him? Another question that comes up for application is, how much of your religious activity is simply a way to make yourself look good or feel good or, or appear to be something you're not? Anything toward those kind of purposes, just playing spiritual games with God. It's not what God wants from you. You think God really just wants you to come to church and dress up and look nice and smile and then try to make it through? And, oh, I'm glad that's over. I don't have to pretend anymore. I can go home and do what I want. That's not what God has for you. Not just religious pretending, but truly a life changed by Jesus. And then we see in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira a great question. Do you take even what you might call the little sins seriously? The little white lies. Realize they're not just little sins. They point to something deeper. And ignoring them or failing to see them as truly sin, as truly detrimental to your life, as truly an offense to God, refusing to see them that way is just playing games with God, not taking His Word seriously. So the call this morning, the invitation this morning, is to choose. No more games with God. To repent. To say, Lord, I'll be honest with you. I've been playing a lot of games. And maybe somebody knows it, maybe nobody knows it, but God, I, I, I'll repent today. I'm turning from all that. And maybe today you'd turn to the one who loves you more than you can even imagine, more than you even love yourself, more than you love your children, your grandchildren, your friends. Jesus loves you more than all of that. You'd turn to the one who didn't play games when it came to your salvation. That He, out of absolute obedience to God the Father and absolute love for you and me, the sinners, went to the cross and paid for our sin. To demonstrate His own love, the Bible says that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And He was raised again to give us the promise of new life for all who will believe. Maybe today you say, Lord, I'm done playing games. And that's what I want. And I will surrender everything and no longer play games. Let's pray together. As we normally do at the close of our service, we'll have a song in just a moment. We're going to sing a different one that's actually in your bulletin. I've asked the guys if we could sing I Surrender All. I think it fits.
And maybe today, you just as you sit there and, and you spend time with the Lord, you would say, Lord, I, I surrender all. I'm done playing games with you. I'm done. I want more of you than just what the games are getting me. Lord, I want to surrender all. Or maybe as you stand in a moment and you sing it, that would be your heart's cry and your prayer, and you would simply pray through singing, Lord, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. We'll have one of our deacons who will be standing down here just if you'd like to pray with somebody. If you'd be so bold and so humble at the same time as to say, look, I've been playing games with God, and today I repent, would you pray for me? Maybe there's another prayer need in your life and you just want somebody to, to join you. However it is that God is working in your heart, please do not leave here without responding to Him in repentance and faith. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would move in our lives, even in these last few moments, that our prayer and our, our song of worship would be, I surrender all. Everything we freely give to You. Lord, may we not play games anymore with You as individuals or as a church in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever we may go. No more games. But change us as we surrender all to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.